Well, this morning, I'd like to begin by telling you a story, and it's a story that very likely you have heard before. It's a story of an owner, a man who owned a vineyard, and uh, he was in need of workers to help him in his work, and so uh, it didn't matter whether the work needed was to weed or to water or to prune or to harvest. All the workers were just needed to come and help in this vineyard. So he went to the marketplace early in the morning where he found individuals looking for employment. He found some, picked them up, and went to work for that day. Well, apparently the owner needed more help, and so around 9 o'clock in the morning, he went back to the market to find a few more individuals who are not afraid to work. He found, again found some and went back to his vineyard. But as before, the owner found that the work to be done far exceeded the workers that he had. And so he went back again at noon, and then he went back again at 3 o'clock, and lastly, he went back an hour before the end of the work day at 5 p.m. Uh, to pick up some more workers. Now, the first workers that he picked up, they were told that they would be paid a fool's day wage for the full day's work that they would put in, while the others were told that they would get an amount, and the amount that they would get, it would be fair. They would be treated fairly. So just trust me, the owner said, I'll make sure you're paid fairly. So as the sun was setting, the owner called on his accountant to pay all of the employees. And of course, they're all anxious to see if the owner would live up to his word and deliver what he promised, a day's wage for some and whatever was fair for the others. The first group was pleased, of course, when the treasurer gave to each their promised amount, but their happiness turned to harping when all the other employees were paid the same amount they were paid, but for less work. They were pretty livid. They plucked up the courage to question the owner's judgment and apparently apparent unfairness in paying more to those who worked less than they did. How could it be that everyone received the same pay for varying amounts of time put into the work? Was it really fair for the owner to pay each employee the same amount? <laughs> now, although perhaps not a true story, it's one that Jesus told. Jesus told it uh, just days away from his betrayal and his death. And what encouraged him to tell the story? By the way, the story is found in Matthew 20, so you're welcome to turn there, Matthew 20. This story is so important that inspiration guided the writers and guided those who put these books together to record this story three times. You can find it in Matthew, in Mark, and also in the Gospel according to Luke. What was it that led Jesus to tell this story about a vineyard owner who went out throughout the course of the day to pick up different workers and, uh, and they all received the same pay? What can of worms opened up that led Jesus to tell this another profound parable? Well, he had just, in chapter 19 of Matthew, Jesus had been approached by a rich young ruler. Now, we derive that he was rich, we derive that he was young, and we derive that he was a ruler from the three accounts of the stories recorded in the Gospels. And he approached Jesus with the question, you can read the question in, in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 16. He said, good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? That was the question that this rich young ruler came to Jesus with. What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now, his question was sincere. 
His question was earnest, and he obviously had a desire to know the truth. His salutation to Jesus, good master, was also very, was pretty curious, for no one at that time in that culture ever linked the two words together. A master was a master, and according to the Mishnah, only God was good. You never joined the two words together, good master. The master was a master, but only God was good. So perhaps this young man was making a declaration of his faith uh, covertly, not wanting too many to, to know his, uh, his position regarding Jesus. So the question was asked, and then Jesus goes on to explain what it means to enter into life presently and into eternal life. And what was Jesus' answer according to verse 17? He said, keep the commandments. If you want eternal life, keep the commandments. Keep them, you see. Now, apparently, from the young ruler's response, I've kept all these things from my youth up, what do I still lack? He was pretty sure that he was probably one step away from perfection. But although he had diligently obeyed the letter of the law, he obviously felt there was still something lacking, still something not quite right in his life. Even though he had lived an exemplary life in not stealing from anyone or taking anyone's wife or their life, he didn't truly love his fellow man as much as himself. He was obedient to the letter of the law, not the Spirit. So if he really wanted to be perfect, because Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, obviously that was his desire, perfection. If you really want to be perfect, which had been his goal, it couldn't be attained through works or through his own merit. He needed to experience a true change of heart, a true change of life. His mind needed to be transformed. His objectives needed to be changed. He needed selfishness. Bottom line, he needed selfishness eradicated from his life. He needed to give what he had to the poor. Jesus said, and then take up your cross and follow me. All prompted by supreme love and regard for God. Wow, it's a tall order. It's a tall order. And with a lot of sadness... This ruler, we're told, walked away from Jesus realizing that the true cost of discipleship was much more than he himself could bear. Now, from verses 23 through 30, after this encounter that Jesus had with the rich young ruler, Jesus describes the utter impossibility of someone who treasures riches, or for anything for that matter, more than love for God. How does Jesus do that? He gives the illustration of a camel going through the eye of a needle. Impossible. And this statement of Jesus, that it's impossible for someone who is rich to enter into heaven, uh, it's as difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven as it is for a camel to go through the eye of the needle, that troubled them. Because in their hearts and in their minds, they were striving for what? Do you remember? For supremacy. They wanted to be number one in the kingdom of God. They believed Jesus was going to establish an earthly kingdom and they were going to be next to him and they would then be wealthy and powerful. And this troubled them much harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, just like it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Man, they struggled together over who would be the greatest and they feared that Jesus might be lumping them in this category. But Jesus, as he often loves to do, provided hope with the powerful words recorded in verse 26. He said, with men, this is what? Impossible. But with God, how many things are possible? 
all things are possible with God. It's a wonderful promise. While it would be impossible for anyone in, on, in, in and of themselves to free them from the grip of sin or from, from covetousness or whatever it would be, God could do it if they would just let Him have their hearts. What was impossible for man was possible for God. Now, Jesus, of course, isn't denouncing having lots of money. He's just saying that some people who have it end up worshiping it, and they end up wanting more. And it becomes very difficult for that individual to put God first. So we're encouraged, perhaps, by this thought and the promise of that conditional treasure. He talked about Peter. Peter, as he so frequently did, assumed the spokesperson position. And in verse 27, he said to Jesus, look, we've left everything and we've followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? What shall we have? <laughs> now, when Peter said that we've left everything to follow you, this was no overstatement. The disciples had truly left everything that was familiar to them to learn of Jesus. Something the ruler didn't do, the rich young ruler didn't do. Jesus' answer, he must have thrilled the disciples when they learned of the hundredfold blessing in this life, which was an illusion of the joy of Christian fellowship and the satisfaction that comes with the service of God. You remember Paul speaks of those things, he said, I have, no, I have nothing, yet I possess all things. That's what Jesus is saying here. You receive a hundredfold blessing in this life, the blessings of the joy of Christian fellowship, and the blessings of serve, serving God. And also, you will receive, Jesus said, the gift of eternal life. The gift of eternal life will be granted to those who are willing to forsake all to follow Jesus. And it's a wonderful, wonderful assurance, a wonderful thing Jesus states right here. In verse 28 and in verse 29, He explains the promise Yes, you've left everything, and you want to know what you're going to receive? You're going to receive a lot of blessings in this life, and you're going to receive the promise of eternal life. Well, wonderful promise, but, but Jesus didn't end there. He concluded His thoughts in verse 30, but many who are what? First will be last, and the last will be first. Not everyone who has the appearance, Jesus says, not everyone who has the appearance of being first will be, or being first in heaven will be. They might be the last ones heaven would consider opening the gates to. However, however, those who appear the least worthy would be considered first. Now, this also has a deeper meaning, what Jesus is saying here, had a deeper meaning for the disciples themselves. Peter's question, what shall we have therefore, revealed a, a, a wrong attitude, a wrong spirit when it came to serving Jesus, when it came to following Jesus. And if it was left uncorrected, it would not prepare the disciples for service with Jesus. They still worked with the thought in mind of meriting reward in proportion to their labor. They cherished a spirit of egotism that strove for recognition. They were still in the bad habit of comparing themselves with others. For example, when one of them failed or failed in something, the other indulged in feelings of superiority. If it were up to us, we could have done the job better. Maybe Jesus won't choose them to sit next to Him when He sets up His new kingdom, but I will, 
because I could have done the job better. So to be sure that you and I, the disciples, get the point about the last being first and the first being last, Jesus tells a story, the one that we began the message with here this morning. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 1. Jesus said, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, it was the habit of certain individuals looking for employment to wait at the market for an opportunity, a work opportunity. The owner in the parable simply represents God and represents his dealings with humanity, his dealings with humanity. He is seen, this owner is seen going in and out at different intervals of the day, trying to engage laborers, new employees. Those who are hired first agree to the work for a stated amount, and those who are hired later leave their wages to the discretion of the vineyard owner. Now, there's an important thing that I don't want to pass over here, and it's very, very crucial, very important. The owner needed workers. That's very obvious from the story, amen? The owner needed workers. Everyone who wanted to work was employed. This is, this is a parable about what the kingdom of heaven is like. So if it's about the kingdom of heaven, if it's about the church, then you and I ought to sit up and pay attention and say, okay, what lessons can we learn here? This parable tells me that there is a place for everyone who wants to work in the vineyard if they want to do the work. Everyone who wishes to do something for Jesus can find a place to serve. It doesn't matter what age you are, what height you are, what color you are, what gender you are, what talents you bring. God is not so much concerned with hiring those who are equipped to work, but equipping those who want to work. You don't have to have all the requisite talent to do something for Jesus. You just need to have a willing heart. Amen? That's it. God doesn't care what your background has been or where you've been. All He wants to know is if you will go out for Him and work in His vineyard. That's what He wants. Irrespective of your limitations of time, of your limitations on gifts or your ability, Jesus will use you if you are simply willing. That's it. Let's go on with the story. It doesn't end there. There are workers needed in the vineyard. Look at verse 2. Now, when he agreed with the laborers, that's those that were employed at the beginning part of the day, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. Verse 3. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and what, whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one hired us. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, you will receive. So the owner realizes, the owner realizes that he needs more workers throughout the day and he's able to find more willing individuals to labor for him. He doesn't tell them what he'll pay them or only that, only that the price, the pay will be fair. And upon that word, they all sign up. The workers are called at different hours of the day. All these workers in the parable are all called at different hours of the day. And all these workers represent all those who've been called, all God's children, men and women, boys and girls, for the sharing and the proclamation of the gospel, not only does it represent those today, 
but in a special sense, they represent all those who've gone before us and toiled for our Lord in ages past. After Israel neglected their God-given assignment, Jesus turned to the church to bear the message to the world. And so men and women, boys and girls of centuries past, have lit the world with the light that shines from the gospel as they've shared it with people far and wide. All these workers called throughout different parts of the Christian history. All these workers have been employed all throughout time, right up till this time. And then you come to the 11th hour workers. The 11th hour workers, and who are they? The 11th hour workers represents those who will come into the truth in this last hour of earth's history. Jesus is speaking prophetically here. Some of you are wondering, why are we talking about a parable like this? This has nothing to do with the last days, nothing to do with end time. Hold on a second, hold on a second. Number one, Jesus told it, so it's important, amen? The gospel writers, three of them recorded it, so that makes it important to get our attention as well. But Jesus told this parable, he was looking down the ages and he knew there would be an 11th hour. He would knew prior to the clock striking midnight, prior to his return, there would be an 11th hour. There would be a time when men and women, boys and girls would still be needed to work in his vineyard. And so the 11th hour workers in a special sense represent all of those who come into the truth of the three angels' messages in the last hour of work. Knowing that their time of service is short, they feel undeserving of the reward. But filled with joy that God has accepted them, they all do the work with all they've got that God has entrusted to them. They work with a humble, with a thankful, trusting spirit, and they, they count it a privilege to be co-laborers together with God. Let's continue the story because it's not done. Notice verse 8. So when the evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first, verse 9. And when those came who were hired about the 11th hour, they each received a denarius, verse 10. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. So the owner calls the treasurer in to give all the workers gather them together to give them their day's pay. And amazingly, every single one receives the same wage. And of course, you know which group had a problem with that, right? Yeah. As human nature is so prone to do, they begin to whinge and they begin to complain and they question the wisdom of the owner's decision, verse 11 and 12. And wouldn't you? But it's interesting that during their pity party, they actually forgot that what they picked up, when they got picked up, for work by the owner of the vineyard, they were happy. They were happy, one, to get work, and number two, for the pay that they were offered. But now they felt deserving of more, entitled to a greater reward. Was it reasonable to be so demanding of the owner? You know, there are some Christians too, who have moved gradually away from feelings of extreme honor to be a part of the body of Christ, being counted worthy to even touch God's work, feeling overwhelmed to be freely granted a place in the family of God and in the service of God. Now what is seen is attitudes of entitlement, acknowledgement for surface rendered in the past. You need to, you need to, you need to applaud me. You need, to, you need to pat me on the back for all the things that I've done. No longer is seen once hard work that was infused with a humble, 
trusting spirit, thankful for the privilege of being honored to be a co-worker with Jesus Christ. Now what do you get? You get preferential treatment is expected and the work is taken up, if at all, with a self-congratulatory spirit without the spirit of self-denial and self-sacrifice. While it may be true that these individuals may have endured hardship, some privations, some trials, and therefore entitled to applause, they think more of the reward than the privilege of being a servant of Christ. Someone said once, that have, have, there is no place, there is no room in heaven for anyone who desires the crown more than bearing the cross. In Christ Object Lessons, page 400, in their view, their labors and sacrifices entitle them to receive honor above others, and because this claim is not recognized, they get offended. It reveals their desire for self-advancement, their distrust of God, their jealous, grudging spirit toward their brethren. The Lord's goodness and liberality is to them only an occasion of murmuring. There is nothing more offensive to God than this narrow, self-caring spirit. He cannot work with anyone who manifests these attributes, end quote. This is an important message. Jesus is talking about the 11th hour workers, those who will be laboring prior to Jesus' coming. And this will be the attitude in some respects, in some corners of God's church, thinking they deserve applaud and praise, thinking they deserve more than they've been receiving. Was it reasonable for them to be demanding of the owner? Was it reasonable for them? No. No, they simply expected more because they didn't understand the basis on which the payment was made. Now notice verse 13. Look with me here, we've got to close up now. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a Daenerys? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give you this, I wish to give to this last man the same as, you, as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things, or is your eye evil because I'm good? So the last will be first, and the first last, for many are called, but few are chosen. Here the owner explains his actions being merely entirely a matter of generosity and not just desserts. Not just desserts. He rewarded not according to the amount of work done or the time put in, but according to the generosity of His purpose. Romans chapter 4, verse 4. Turn with me there. Romans 4, verse 4. Notice what Paul wrote here about God's grace. Romans chapter 4 and verse 4. Notice what he says here talking about Abraham, Romans 4, 4, Paul wrote, now to him who works, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as what? As debt. According to the Bible, any reward that we receive at the hand of God is reckoned, according to Paul, reckoned of what, friends? Of grace, is reckoned of grace or offered and extended purely on the basis of God's generous, generous purposes. If we received a reward based upon the work we did or the time that we put into it or the results that we acquired, then that would make God a debtor to me, to us. That's what Paul's saying here. It would make him a debtor to us. That would mean God owes us something. Is that the case? No, no, not at all. We'd be sorry if we got what we really deserve, wouldn't we? Surely, but the reward given is not based upon what we have done, but upon God's graciousness. That's it. And it is 
this grace that should motivate us and spur us on to proclaim the message. When we remember it is by grace that we have been saved, when we realize it is still by grace that we are being saved, that it is by grace that we labor and by God's grace that we receive our reward, knowing this should be the reason for our willing, our faithful and earnest response of a faith that works by love in the service of the Lord. Amen? It's that which drives us on. In Christ Object Lessons, page 402, she says, it is not the length of time we labor, but our willingness and fidelity in the work that makes it acceptable to God. The smallest duty, you don't have to be a missionary to some far country. You don't even have to be a martyr. The smallest duty done in sincerity and self-forgetfulness is more pleasing to God than the greatest work when marred with self-seeking. He looks to see how much of the spirit of Jesus we, we cherish and how much of the likeness of Christ our works reveal. He regards more the love and faithfulness with which we work than the amount we do. The realization that we are yoked up with Jesus should sweeten the toil, it should brace the will and nerve the spirit for whatever might happen as we serve the Lord of glory. What a joy to serve Christ. Amen. What a joy to serve Jesus, all because of grace. We're not deserving of, of that. That's why it's called grace. We're not deserving to be linked up, to be called fellow laborers to, without, to our God, to be ambassadors for the cause of it. We're not worthy, but it's of grace that Jesus has called us to toil and to labor for him. As I close, the story was told of a beggar who was by the roadside and he was asking for alms of Alexander the Great, the Grecian king. He was walking by and the man was poor and he was wretched and he had no claim whatsoever upon the ruler, no right even to lift up a solicitous hand, and yet the emperor threw him several gold coins. The courtier that was with Alexander the Great was astonished, he was amazed at the generosity of Alexander the Great. And he commented, Sir, copper coins would adequately meet a beggar's need. Copper coins, why'd you give gold? Copper coins would have adequately met a beggar's need. Why give him gold? And Alexander responded in royal fashion, copper coins would suit the beggar's need, but gold coins suit my giving. So too, God rewards according to the generosity of his purpose. And friends, it's called grace. It's called grace. So no matter how short our service or humble our work, if in simple faith we follow Christ, we will not ever be disappointed with the reward that Jesus chooses to give to us. What the greatest and the wisest cannot earn, the weakest and the most humble will receive. How great will be the reward of grace to those who have worked for God in the simplicity of faith. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.